News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. On the one hand, you have a country like the UK, which is coming out of lockdown, planning for the future, moving ahead, thanks to their liberal use of the AstraZeneca vaccine. Here in Canada, meanwhile, Ontario, Alberta, they have now paused the use of that same vaccine, while deliveries of the drug to Canada have largely stopped. So what happens to the more than quarter million British Columbians, including myself, who have gotten that one dose? What about the second dose? Does this mean the end of AstraZeneca deliveries to Canada? Well, for more on this, we're joined now by Andre Picard, our Globe and Mail health columnist. Thank you so much for being with us. Good morning. Are you surprised by what you're hearing from Ontario and Alberta to make that decision? Uh, No, I'm not surprised at all. I was writing earlier in the week about how this is the way we have to go. Uh, AstraZeneca just has a little bit too much baggage. It doesn't have a good public perception. We have supply problems. Uh, We have alternatives. So all these things add up to saying it's not worth the bother at this point. Do you think, is there any concern though, like does it contribute to people saying, I don't want that particular vaccine? And isn't that a worry? Well, I think we're already there. I think we were already at the point where people have doubts about it. We see that anecdotally. We see it in polling that most people would refuse this vaccine now. So I think we have to adjust to that reality. You know, the the truth is this vaccine works as well as any other. It has a slightly higher uh, risk, but very tiny. But it's the perception problem that we're dealing with now. So that, uh, yeah, I think it's worth uh, getting rid of it just because of that. And what do you think that means then for people who have already gotten one dose of that vaccine? Where does that leave us? I think we have well, I think it leaves you. I think people should still be happy they did it. I think it was the right thing to do at the time. You know, a few weeks ago, things have changed quite a bit in those weeks. So it is a good decision. You are, have good protection. You should be happy about that. And you should get your second dose uh, when it's appropriate. And then the only difference, I think, is you're going to have a choice. Will you get a second AstraZeneca or will you get uh, something else like Pfizer? And that will be a, a personal choice and it's going to be guided increasingly. We're going to get some good research on that this week on mixing. But uh, every indication is that mixing doses works and works really well. Yeah, let's talk about that a little bit. So is that being studied right now, this idea of, yeah, you can mix vaccines? Oh, yeah. There's a big study actually coming out. We're expecting it later today from out of England, out of Britain. So, uh, And I think every indication is that it will work. In fact, there's some small studies that show that it actually, uh, you actually get better protection if you mix the vaccines. It's not really clear why, but uh, that, that's good news. That is good news. What do you think, Andre, of how the vaccination program has gone so far? You know, this is a, a fast-moving target. Uh, we knew that it would be bumpy. Uh, Canada got off to a slow start, but I think we've made a lot of progress in, in a short time. You know, we're doing almost as well as anyone in the world now. We still have some catching up to do, but I, I think the program overall is going well. 
But there's always going to be challenges, and so this is unprecedented. And I think in Canada, what's distinguished us, unfortunately, is I don't think we've had the greatest communication. So we, you know, if you, you compare us to the UK, for example, the UK has just as many uh, deaths per capita from this vaccine. It's, you know, it has the same problems, but people have embraced it uh, more because they haven't had the same confusing messaging. So and then I, I've, since, I've since, since day one of the, the pandemic that the message part is the, the single most important thing we can do in public health, and we, we haven't done that really that well. And why do you think that is? Is it because it's all left up to the individual provinces? And, and like, why, why has it been like that? I think that's a big part of it. We don't have a we don't have a spokesperson. There's not a, a person who's the voice of, of COVID in Canada. It's kind of dispersed. I think we have a problem with uh, uh, scientists who are sort of thrust into the public uh, uh, limelight, and they're not used to talking to the public. It's very different speaking to a bunch of scientists and speaking to the public. I think that's been the problem with NACI, the National Immunization uh, Committee. I think they do great work, but I think they're not very good at talking to to everyday people and and that's confused a lot of people unfortunately yeah but this is something that you do so you've been doing this for a long time andre it seems like there's an awful lot of armchair epidemiologists out there now too Uh, what what is your advice to people who are trying to absorb all of this health and science information that's out there now I think the the best thing to do is to not uh, get worked up about any single story or any single headline, just sort of try and put it into some context. And the context is really important. The context is that all vaccines work. They work really well. Uh, Some of them are slightly different, like AstraZeneca has a slight risk of blood clot, but that really depends on who you are. If you're younger, if you're a woman, it's to be avoided. But generally, so try, you know, try and look at the big picture, I think is the best advice you can give people. We uh, and journalists, we're the worst of this. We get caught up in every little yes, you know, <laughs> hiccup that so happens. But uh, you have to, at the end of the day, stand back and see what's what's really changed, what's different. And, and nothing's really changed. We should still get vaccinated. We should still get our second vaccine. Things are, are getting much better. So we, we have to, I think, uh, keep that in perspective. That is excellent advice. Andre, thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you. Appreciate your time. That's Andre Picard, Global Mail Health columnist. Just check him out online. He's been talking. He's been doing some podcasts for the Global Mail. He has been uh, writing, of course, as he always does. And that is good advice because there was some nervousness with people who, you know, a couple hundred thousand people have gotten the AstraZeneca vaccine here in BC. And you think, well, what's going to happen to the second dose now if provinces like Ontario and Alberta have decided to pause that? I'm going to be looking forward to reading about these studies involving the mixing of vaccines, meaning your first dose might have been AstraZeneca, but your second dose can be Pfizer or Moderna, and that's okay. As Andre pointed out, that is coming out later today. I'm sure we'll be all hearing and reading more about that. This is Mornings with Simi. Hey, let's say good morning to Raji Sohal, our contributor today. Good morning, Raji. Good morning, Simi. Did you hear the uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame story that Gord McDonald was talking about earlier? Oh, just missed it. Oh, well, knowing how much you love music, since we heard that yesterday, uh, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame announced today who their latest class is going to be. And uh, you know what? The Go-Go's are on there. How do you feel about the Go-Go's? Love the Go-Go's. Oh, that's exciting to hear. I'm almost shocked they're not already on it. This is what I said, right? The Foo Fighters, the Go-Go's, Jay-Z, Carole King, Todd Rundgren, Tina Turner. So Jay-Z's making it in there, which is great. 
awesome. But I mean, come on, the Go-Go's have been around for a lot longer than JC and they're just yeah. making it in there. I know. I and shocked. they're hugely influential, substantial group. So, well, that's good to hear that they're making it in though. I'm yes, glad about they that. are. Uh, we should talk about registration for vaccination. So yesterday, the government's saying they need more people to register uh, so that we can get the vaccine. But I, don't, I feel like vaccine hesitancy isn't isn't as much of a problem here as it could be elsewhere, like down in the States, don't you think? Yeah, well, apparently also the anti-vax movement is a lot more popular over there. So yeah, I think people there need a little bit more coaxing. Coaxing. I saw this story about the, the things that people are being offered down in the States to get their vaccines. It's crazy. Yeah, I, I don't... <laughs> I don't look forward to something like this happening in Canada where we have to uh, persuade people with essentially a bribe. Hey, if it works. Yeah. So in, uh, in the States, uh, you know, different States are doing it differently and some are offering Uber or Lyft rides in uh, exchange for going to get your coronavirus vaccine. Metro cards in New York, which seems kind of practical. I could see a lot of people wanting to use that, although it does target the poor and underprivileged um, who wouldn't, who would be using the Metro, wouldn't be able to afford to use the Metro normally would opt for that option of taking a free seven day Metro card. Um, And then there's lavish ones like tickets to the Chicago music series. That seems uh, amazing incentive enough. Yes. And tickets to a New York baseball game, which Andrew uh, governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo announced uh, would be available to people. So you'd go to get your Johnson and Johnson coronavirus vaccine at the stadium and then, you know, get a free ticket to a future game while you're there. That's kind of cool. Crazy. Like I know that there was a, I think there was a a minor league hockey team here who said the same thing that if you can show proof of vaccination, they'll give you a ticket to a future game. And I did kind of think, well, wouldn't it be nice if some of the big league teams around here could do something similar to that? But Given how many people think? are being vac- vaccinated, like you can't, <laughs> if you told I, the Canucks I disagree. I really? feel like, yeah, I feel like uh, it's a slippery slope. Once you start asking people to do something that they should want to do anyway, just as part of being a citizen in a larger community and a, in a country full of people you care about. Um, I feel like once you start bribing people to do things like, hey, get vaccines or vote, um, it can be a, a slippery slope. I mean, in New Jersey, they're offering beer, uh, which is hardly, or, you know, Budweiser is offering something um, for individuals over the age of 21. That to me is kind of ironic, given that you're getting the <laughs> vaccine because it's for your health. And then, hey, fill yourself up with some beer or better yet, uh, the Krispy Kreme donuts being given away for free in March uh, in San Francisco. Those were actually so popular that suddenly Krispy Kreme was seen to trend yeah. in San Francisco well, online in social media. They so got that my was eye. A smart. Yeah. yeah. Oh got, yes. I was like, I, mean, I hadn't heard about them donut? since I think the nineties, and I was suddenly going, "Hey, oh yeah, Krispy Kreme, that was good." <laughs> you don't drive down Scott Road often enough, then Raji, because then you would no. see the hot donut sign illuminated, and then you would think about having a Krispy Kreme yeah. donut. I Do like they still the keep fr- a lineup. Um, if there's a if the hot donut sign if if the light is on then yes because I think you, do they still give out I think they still give out a free donut if the hot light is on if they're actually making donuts at that moment they used to um, the free beer one is interesting so that's in New Jersey as Raji mentioned free beer at participating breweries to people 21 and older who get their first vaccine dose in the month of May I can see how that would be a huge attraction for a lot of people 
there's also a Target coupon of $5. Now, if I'll anyone, take it. It, you'll take it. <laughs> I mean, they could have afforded to make that a $50 coupon while they were at it, but I guess beggars can't be choosers. I'll take the $5 Target coupon. Also, uh, New Yorkers, it seems to me they're giving a lot of incentives for New Yorkers here. New Yorkers can get their vaccine at the uh, American Museum of Natural History, which I love, and then they get a voucher for free general admission for up to a group of four for the future. Yeah, and I, I don't recall exactly how much those tickets are, but they're up there. They're they're pricey. So yeah. that's that's a real incentive. I would probably take that one. How over do you feel the about donuts? How, well, what about cheesecake then? Because Junior's Cheesecake in Brooklyn, which by the way, I've had their cheesecake. It's phenomenal. They're offering a free mini cheesecake uh, to anyone who shows their coronavirus vaccination card at their location in downtown Brooklyn. My gosh, this is better than Christmas. It is better. in the states, obviously. Here, we just want you to do the right thing and go and get vaccinated. Pretty much, wow. yeah. I mean, I I don't know that we would want to go down this route of incentivizing uh, vaccines. I think that the campaign should stay on the healthy, healthy. If it if it were to go that direction, it shouldn't you know offer things like beer and donuts. And yet, in the same breath, I tell you that if I was in the states, I might. I might also grab right. a beer too. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, we won't have to worry about that, hopefully, up here. Uh, Raji, thank you. We'll check in with you later. See you, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about getting scammed because it is not a pleasant experience. And there's always, it seems like, new scams out there that are trying to get your attention. Now, the Better Business Bureau is warning of another one, this time of COVID-19 vaccine passport scams. The Canadian government recently announced they're actively exploring the idea of us having vaccine passports for international travel. This is something that other jurisdictions are also working on. And yet there have already been reports of people having kind of fraudulent vaccination cards or passports that they're trying to use even upon entry to Canada. For more on this, we're joined now by Denny Gagnon, who's our BCSI Investigations President and looks into cybersecurity scams. Denny, thanks for being back with us. Good morning, Simi. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Are, are these stories becoming more common, do you think? It's the continuing saga of COVID-19. So we went from uh, basically the vaccine, now we're going into the post-vaccine era. So it's becoming even more complex, as you know. Um, now people are taking advantage of getting profits. And when it's in ends, uh, Simi, I was thinking to you earlier, with donuts and beer and whatever else is going to come, Obviously, it's going to enhance the fact that, you know, counterfeit will be produced to be able to get those uh, those perks. Right. So people need to be aware. Like, I guess I don't understand why then it's taking government so long, because I feel like you need to have a standard form here. Otherwise, people are making up their own. It is extremely complicated to implement. I understand that some companies have already started in some association. For example, the International Air Transport Association, uh, IETA has now launched uh, an app, you know, so, but, you know, in regards to uh, implementing it, it's very, very complex, but, you know, uh, because of the different jurisdiction we're dealing with, you know, it's okay if they're going to request it and they may request it in the workplace, in gyms and so on, and local, when you're starting to deal with international travel, there's a huge amount of complexity of it. As you know, passports are complex when you go and get one. So in regards to verification of, you know, your ID and so on, are we going to do that with the vaccine? So is that going to be the control factor and where the information will be gathered and monitored uh, is extremely complex. It is what, is it going to be private? 
A lot of private companies are trying to develop an app to do that now. Is it going to be a government program? So that's what we're faced with at the moment. So where, like, do people, off, do they, are they using, like, fraudulent vaccine cards? Because I, I heard that there was also, like, people arrested in the States for selling these. Correct. Um, now, for example, I'm looking at my Pfizer card. It'd be pretty easy to, you know, to duplicate in regards. It's not a passport, but let's assume this card with my second dose of Pfizer becomes a passport. So it's fairly easy, or I would say very, very easy to duplicate. What the IATA has done is that they have four steps that, you're, that are very tight in regards to what you need to do. They're, they're controlling where you're going to get your vaccine, the controlling the app, and then they're controlling or you present the app with a digital passport. So it's going to have to be multiple steps in regards to the way it's controlled, because otherwise it's going to be sold online. You're going to get a, you know, a QR code. Quebec is implementing that right now. Would you get a QR, a QR code on your barcode on your phone? And then you can use that as your passport. Pretty easy to duplicate in regards to <laughs> who's going to be having this QR code. So the barcode. So this is where the problem is going to start. But 30 airlines now have done the IATA travel pass. Even Israel is starting a new program called the Green Pass. So those are going to be very tight in regards to control. But should it be, my question in, uh, is, uh, Simi, should it be a government program or a private program? That's a, that's a big question because will profit overtake ethics? I'm, I'm looking at all the models now and I'm trying to find the best way. Is there a best one that you see out there that is being used? I like the green pass from Israel uh, because it's, it, it is quietly controlled and it's, it applies to daily life as well. Gyms, movie theaters, restaurants, public places. But again, does that mean if you don't get vaccinated, you can't go anywhere, you can't go to the restaurant? That's going to be another issue with you know, charter of rights, human rights. There's going to be a lot of lawyers that are going to you know, focus on that. Is that. Do you have to be vaccinated to have a lifestyle? And then the other one is the, which I'm looking into right now in more detail, is the IATA, which I think 30 airlines now have taken on, uh, approximately 30 airlines to use. And that seems to be pretty tight. But again, um, counterfeiter um, scammers are very, very, very sophisticated. So I am certain that there will be some counterfeit vaccine passport being sold online. I mean, vaccine has been sold online. Uh, the vaccine are being sold normally for about... Uh, sometimes about $20, the test, $25, the fake test. And, well, no, the fake vaccine's a bit more, maybe 250 And then we're looking at now um, the individual trying to capitalize on, on the, um, you know, on the right. vaccine passports. It sounds like, though, that the government better hurry up and get this system in place because that it feels like this gray area is where the scammers kind of jump in. It is, like I said, implementation... You know, you've seen the implementation of the vaccine, how complex it has been. Well, multiply that by multiple folds now. Because as you know, when you get your passport, it's not an easy adventure. I mean, you have to go to the passport office and so on, and it's fairly complicated. You can imagine the backup now in regards to if anybody wants to get a passport, what we're looking at in regards to timeline. It's not going to be tomorrow. All right, Denny, thank you so much for your time. You're very welcome. Take it. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about the gang violence that has been plaguing our community over, well, years really it's been a problem. But the last couple of weeks we've talked a lot about the 
increase in the number of shootings, people killed, innocent bystanders being involved. Now, we know that Metro Vancouver is the only large urban area in all of Canada that doesn't have a unified police force, right? Our region is all divided up between municipal forces and the RCMP. Is it time to finally change that, especially in light of what we're seeing happen here with all this gang violence? Well, joining us now is Mike Morris, BC Liberal MLA and critic for public safety. Thank you for being with us. Good morning, Timmy. What aren't we doing right? Like, what is going wrong for us here to have all this happening? Yeah, you know, we're we're operating with an outdated model uh, for policing in British Columbia, and quite frankly, I think uh, right across the country here. So, you know, right at this moment, we probably have, uh, and I know they are, they're bringing in resources from all areas of the RCMP to supplement CFSEU and their gang activity units uh, in the lower mainland here, and uh, they're trying to coordinate it with the other independent forces we have as well. Um, that's a stopgap that, that will work uh, in the short term, but I think we need to look at a more integrated policing model uh, moving forward. It feels like that's something that we've talked about for a long time, right? But how, how do we actually make that happen? Yeah, it's going to take political will. Um, I, I, I offered to make a submission to the uh, Standing Committee on, on reviewing the Police Act, and uh, um, they wouldn't let me uh, make a submission or a verbal one, but they did allow me to submit a paper one. So I do have one on record there that can be viewed uh, online. But I've been working on that for a number of years uh, from the time I was the Solicitor General, I, I, I felt you were helpless, or the Solicitor General was helpless in a sense in trying to organize the resources that he or she might need to address situations like we're seeing today. So I put this together, and, and uh, I think it's something that will work. Uh, it's something that's supported by other police agencies uh, across the province here. Uh, we just need the political will to sit down and make it work and redraft legislation uh, to allow that to happen. So it would be complicated, though, I guess, because, well, for a number of reasons. But I mean, you have to, to get rid of the RCMP. There's so many of these little detachments there. Is their contract not with policing for the entire province? Yeah, but that can be, you know, I have worked with the RCMP on this, and I'm curious to see what their comments are when they appear before the committee as well. But, you know, my my model was proposing one public safety unit for the entire province uh, and separated into three, uh, three branches. So one would be criminal. Uh, the research I did on this indicated that about 30% of most police agencies' file load is criminal in nature, and 70% is related to social uh, justice issues. Uh, and that's pretty standard right around the province. So have a criminal unit that focuses solely on guns and gangs uh, uh, for better, uh, for, you know, uh, a description would be CFSEU. And uh, have a giant CFSEU unit that uh, can travel the province and you can front load these investigations like we see taking place right now if you need to bring 100 folks in or 200 folks in to... Uh, to try and quell the gang violence here and use the various techniques that police have available to them, uh, we can do that without interruption on the social justice side, dealing with the mental illness, the addictions, uh, homelessness, and, and those kinds of issues. Right. As you're saying, though, like it's happening right now, but only because of this extraordinary level of violence we're seeing, right? Does it only kick in those kinds of things when we have something like this happen? Uh, yeah, anytime there's a major event. So that's one of the benefits of having the RCMP is they have access to thousands of resources, uh, not only in British Columbia, but across Canada, uh, if you need them. There are provisions to uh, to draw from municipal forces. There's legislation that will allow that to kick in. But, uh, you know, when you have 
uh, 10 or 11 independent forces with their own police boards, with their own management structure, uh, with their own budgets that go with it. Uh, and then you've got 64 um, RCMP municipal contracts in the province in addition to the provincial component of RCMP uh, contracts. It makes it very complex to maneuver through the uh, through the policies and whatnot to activate those those resources. Do you think, like, do the gangs know this? Do they understand? Like, you see cars dropped off in different municipalities after they've used them in the commission of these crimes. Uh, are we being taken advantage of our system? Oh, we are. You know, they know. Uh, you know, they know that uh, we're restricted by jurisdiction in a lot of areas. They know which jurisdictions are short of police officers. They know which ones uh, uh, have uh, you know a, a full complement. So they do take advantage of those systems. They don't care. Uh, they don't have budgets to worry about. They don't have jurisdictions to worry about. Uh, their whole goal is just to commit those crimes. Uh, Mike, thanks so much for joining us this morning. My pleasure. Take we care. We appreciate that. That's Mike Morris, BC Liberal MLA, critic for public safety, talking about what we need to do. And in his opinion, it involves in how we police our province. Metro Vancouver being the only large urban area in Canada that doesn't have a unified police force. Like, yeah, they have cooperative agencies, as Mike Morris was pointing out there. We we do have this gang unit now that kind of jumps in that is drawn from, you know, a number of different officers from different areas to work on this. We have the, you know, integrated homicide investigative team, but not even every municipality belongs to that. So is it time, can we find political will to make a Metro Vancouver Regional Police Force happen. Do you think that's the way to go? Email me, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, one of the things that we've heard about during our opioid overdose epidemic is that too many people are using drugs alone, right? It's leading to very dangerous situations. People dying while using by themselves in private residences is a huge part of the problem. And when you're trying to get help, when you decide that, okay, I'm done, I want to get help, that's a similar problem too, is that you have to find a community of people to share your experience with, find that community of people that supports you so that you're not feeling all alone, which is a huge part of the problem. It can make a big difference when it comes to a successful recovery. So as they say, there's an app for that, as it turns out. Joining us now is Giuseppe Ganchi, who's the Director of Community Development with Last Door Recovery Society and the Better App Project Manager. Giuseppe, thanks for joining us this morning. Hello, thanks for having me. How much of an issue is this? Like if somebody decides they want to get help, what do they do? Like who do you talk to? How do you find other people in a similar situation? Well, the reality is, is when someone asks for help, the truth in Canada is you either have to get in line or go on Google. Uh, For some reason, Canada hasn't been able to organize, manage, or create a recovery-orientated system of care in this country where someone asks for help. It's like the red carpet gets rolled out for you. It's like, here's all the systems of care. What would you like to do? So it's client-centered. Unfortunately, we haven't been able to do that. And I'm not too sure why, because there's lots of other countries that have been able to do that. But for some reason, this country hasn't been able to. So what should you do? I mean, what can help you at that point? 
Well, uh, the truth of the matter is, is, is you need to be connected to people. And, you know, I work in a treatment center and a lot of people that show up to our center, uh, they're not coming from referrals from agencies. It's like my uncle's in recovery. I have a I have a neighbor that's sober. I have a friend that used to go to your program. Uh, you know, it's, it's always word of mouth. Very few referrals actually come from agencies. There's no connection going on. And, and that's why we decided to design an app. Uh, where people can get connected to people in recovery because people in recovery are the best resource to help someone uh, start their journey. Right. It's a very isolating experience, isn't it? I would imagine if you're trying to go to rehab and trying to recover. Well, I think, you know, the government has done a lot of ad campaigns, don't use the loan, and and I, I applaud them for trying. But the truth of the matter is, is I'm a former substance user. I use alone. I don't want to use with people. Um, you know, there's a lot of things that go on in addiction that, that isn't something you share with other people, especially your dope. And, and so it's, you know, this world that everyone's just going to go in a park and use crack together and be happy and then go to work. It just isn't going to exist. So what kind of a difference does it make then? If you can connect somebody to another person who's going through something similar, what does that do? I remember the day, I'll never forget it, that I was in the downtown east side, I was in the alley behind Carnegie Hall, I was completely lost, I was like accessing Vancouver Coastal Health Services, you know, but I was just a patient, I wasn't a person, and uh, there was this guy, and uh, it used to be called the Health Contact Center, and he was in recovery, and, and he was working, and he's like, hey man, there's a way out. And, uh, you know, he explained a little bit of what recovery was to me. I had no idea what he was talking about. Uh, but uh, I, I listened to him for five minutes and it started my journey. And, and that's what we're trying to do with Better App is if you're using drugs, you know, we're trying to get the recovery community on it. And if you're using drugs, you're in the app as well. And, and, and then in that one moment in time where you're like, hey, I've got five minutes to listen to what you got to say, it could change your life. Well, good for you. Uh, That's so impressive. So uh, tell me about the Better app and how people can access it and what it does. So we created the app because there's lots of apps out there that are for people in recovery. And there's lots of apps out there that are for people that use drugs. And and everyone's trying to save lives. And and they're all great apps. But I saw something missing. I, I saw that when... There's a there's a there's a belief out there that if you uh, return to use and 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 you fall back into remission of your addiction, that you're not part of the recovery community anymore. And if you're using drugs, then the recovery community wants nothing to do with you. But that's not true. And and so I wanted to create an app where. Somebody can download it. They can network with other people in recovery. They can listen to motivational speaker tapes. They can uh, do a recovery capital assessment. We really believe in people with high recovery capital have better health health outcomes. So this assesses your recovery capital. There's a bit of a leaderboard game as well in it. And so it's it's a place where people in recovery can feel safe in recovery to connect. And not everybody wants to talk about their recovery on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. So this is a place that you can practice a little bit of anonymity if you will. Right. But we wanted to make sure that if that person in recovery has a relapse, that they can still stay in our community. And, and you can you can volunteer as a safety monitor. You don't have to be in recovery to download the app. You can volunteer as a safety monitor. So if you plan on using a loan, you can tap on geolocate volunteers in the community mm-hmm. and they can um 
sit by on alert. And if you don't shut your alarm off, then you can call first responders for a potential overdose. Or you can add people in your phone list to be your right. safety monitor as well. And, and, and if you do return to using, that you can maybe get inspired by the recovery wall one day or see somebody you know and say, hey, like I'd like to try recovery again. Okay, it's called the Better App. And Giuseppe uh, just told us all about it. He's with the Last Door Recovery Society. So, Giuseppe, thanks so much for being with us this morning. Thank you very much. So it's betterapp.ca if you want to find it to download it. And I really appreciate your time. Thanks. Oh, excellent idea. Thank you for that. That's Giuseppe Ganchi, Director of Community Development with Last Door Recovery Society and the Better App Project Manager. Check it out. This is Mornings with Simi. Now, the federal government, the city of Vancouver, are trying to move towards a new era here, right? An effort to decriminalize drugs as a way to get a handle on the overdose epidemic. It's been an unprecedented effort. It involves, you know, different levels of government, police, Health Canada. But local advocates say there's a lot missing from this planning process, including the people who will be directly impacted by this. They actually want the whole process scrapped and started over. And this week, a coalition of 15 groups got together to send that message. To talk more about that now, we're joined by Garth Mullins, representative from the Vancouver Area Network of Drug Users, or Vandu, and host of the Crackdown podcast. Good morning, Garth. Thanks for being here. Hey, Simi. Thanks for having me. Now, I understand that Vandu has decided to leave the working group that's been working on decriminalization. Why? What happened? Um, well, we decided to leave the kids' table. <laughs> because, um, you know, at Thanksgiving, when you when you get seated at the kids' table, sometimes uh, when you're grown up, you'd prefer to be sitting at the adults' table where the decisions are being made. So, yeah, we, uh, we campaigned for a, a role in um, helping the city to draft this policy right from the beginning. And uh, they locked us out of that process. And so they've started to uh, come to a place where uh, most of us wouldn't actually be benefiting from it. So, you know, for example, the city has defined, the city and the police got together and defined what's an acceptable amount of drugs someone could be holding without getting charged. And it's quite low. And in fact, uh, you know, when I was using heroin uh, earlier in my life, uh, it wouldn't have decriminalized me. So um, we just thought, you know, we could go back and very quickly revisit those numbers with the city and get something that actually would uh, get the police out of the lives of most drug users. Are you discouraged by the way this process has unfolded? Uh, no, this always happens. <laughs> you know, we <laughs> always get we always get shut out. I spend a lot of time trying to uh, elbow my way into rooms where I'm not wanted. So no, I'm used to it. Um, the mayor did uh, promise this to us, like uh, at a press conference on in November of last year. He said, "Oh, don't worry, uh, drug users. You know, the people who will be affected by this policy will be involved every step of the way." He said, "It's my personal guarantee." And uh, we haven't been. So we're, yeah, I mean, I'm not discouraged. I'm just uh, working along with everyone to try and get back in that room. Yeah. What are the next steps then? What happens now? Well, it's kind of over to the mayor um, and and the city and I guess the police. Those are the the people who seem to be uh, driving the process. Um, And we've sort of said, look, we're we're happy to work together on this. In fact, uh, Vandu, the the drug user group, we rapidly did some surveys um, with some advice from academics on how to do them uh, really well to find out what a good good levels would be, what a good approach would be that would would actually decriminalize you know drug users in Vancouver, and um, we did that really fast, and we we already are having some data, so we're happy to help them reset the levels and some of the approaches very quickly, not even interrupting their timeline. So um, it's it's up to them that you know our we have a 
a storefront and a phone number, and they can uh, get a hold of us anytime. All right. We'll hear what they have to say. I think the mayor is going to be talking about this today. Garth, thanks for joining us this morning. Thank you. That's Garth Mullins, representative of Van Du, host of the Crackdown podcast. Uh, one of the organizations that have said, you know what, we're not we're not in these meetings anymore in dealing with decriminalization and the uh, the Vancouver way of doing this because they said they're not being heard. Meanwhile, Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart has released a statement in response to these organizations saying that. And in part, the statement says, Vancouver's application to Health Canada to decriminalize simple possession is based on the best available science and informed by consultation with a wide variety of stakeholders, including people with lived experience. The statement, it's a long one, but it also says that the proposed thresholds are a starting point and will be monitored and evaluated as more data becomes available. Now, Mayor Stewart is going to address this in more detail today during his media availability that should be happening over the lunch hour. But essentially, the Vancouver model, not really working right now, so we'll see what the next steps are. This is Mornings with Simi. We can't resist it. This morning, we have to talk about this driving survey. You may have heard a bit about it in the news this morning because some of the results are, well, kind of amusing, like this one. Now, it's from insurancehotline.com. It found that 95% of Canadian drivers, 95, admit to aggressive and road rage-like behavior when behind the wheel. And yet, 94% of the same people consider themselves to be courteous drivers how can that be? Our contributor, Raji Silhal, is back with us this morning. So how about you, Raji? Is that you behind the wheel? This this piece made me laugh because I am quick to point out what other people are doing wrong. And then I look at myself and I'm going, hey, hang on. I do those very same things. I you know, can't stand when people put their indicator on just at the very last second or not at all. Oh. And yet I sheepishly sometimes decide to change my route and look ahead at the traffic and go, mm, no, I think I should go right. Oh, no, actually, I'll go a different way. I'll go left. So I'm guilty of it. So too. you do and it. <laughs> yeah, I do it. <laughs> but I would never not let someone pass. If someone needs to pass, let them pass. And that's one thing that drives me absolutely nuts. So when that happens to me, I don't I don't get real road rage. I would never swear. It, I would never curse or like throw someone hmm. the, the bird. It's just not my personality. I do the, the, you know, deep breathing thing instead. And I like to treat it like water off my back. But there was a time when I would quietly whisper just a passive aggressive Eeyore welcome. And it <laughs> helped me deal. <laughs> okay. When I was so wronged on the road. I have an email from somebody who that tries to explain this contradiction. Now they wanted to stay anonymous, which is cool. And it says, so I'm one of those drivers that speeds and gives bad drivers the finger and swears at them in my car, yet I feel I am courteous. So I thought, oh, okay. Why do I feel I'm curious, this person said. You won't catch me speeding in a school or park zone. You won't catch Mm -hmm. me driving 50 in the passing lane with a speed limit of 80. As soon as I have passed, I pull to the right lane. You won't catch me driving past someone at a crosswalk. And lastly, I know how to use my turn signal to indicate my intentions. I don't hit my brakes, come to a stop, and then turn on my signal. So that kind of, I can see why somebody might think, listen, I do the right thing. So what if I swear and yell at people sometimes on the road? What kind of driver are you, Simi? Um, 
I feel very much like this person who emailed me. Like I, you know, yes, I don't yell at people or get frustrated or whatever, but yeah, like, you know, every once in a while you're talking to yourself and saying some unflattering things perhaps about the other drivers (laughs) out there. But then I also do feel that I try to be as courteous as I can. Maybe I don't always get there, but it seems to me that in this survey from Insurance Hotline, it really depended on how old you were to the reaction that you had. Yeah, 28% of the drivers um, who've been angry enough behind the wheel to think about doing something impulsive, that was uh, drivers under the age of 35, 38%, were more likely to admit to these thoughts than people who were older, 35 or older. Um, And men, um, 35%, admit to these rash thoughts more than women. 21%. 21%. That's hmm. an interesting breakdown for me. My husband has taught me um, how to deal with uh, what what people are doing on the road when he doesn't like it. So what he does is he just matter-of-factly sportscasts what he sees, just in a neutral tone, a little bit like a traffic reporter. So he doesn't get heated or angry, but just kind of observing and narrating it helps him chill out. Of course, for me, because I have littles in the back, I often drive with my kids in the back. Right. I am so careful about what kind of behavior I'm modeling to them. I don't want them to see that I get stressed out and sweat the small stuff. And <laughs> let's face it, like driving, it, it's such an egocentric activity, right? You're in this like car, it's private, you've got your tunes going. True. You don't want anyone to disrupt any of that. So I find like we were we can all be a little bit smug about driving. Oh, I think everybody, everybody thinks they're a better, and I'm, I'll include myself in that because I'm sure that is true. We all <laughs> think we're better drivers probably than we actually are. Uh, so you're, it sounds like your number one pet peeve then is people who don't signal in time. Oh yeah, that'll get Is me. it by oh, far? you know what else? The uh, No, not by far. The other thing is people being, thinking they're being friendly by letting you go first when it's actually their turn. It's like, no. You are not going to decide just that you, because you are. A kind don't hold person. up traffic. Yeah, don't yes, hold up traffic for everybody else. The traffic rules. Yeah, yeah. I've had that happen too, where somebody just waited like an extraordinary amount of time, held up traffic <laughs> to allow somebody to turn left in front of them. I'm like, why are you doing that? Like yeah. you're impeding the flow of traffic. Just go, and that person will get their chance. Yeah, and and I feel like I have maybe once or twice also been guilty of it myself, like in all of this stuff. So. <laughs> I'm able to see, see what I'm, where I'm uh, faulting here. Um, the study also showed, or the survey showed that, uh, some of the angry antics, um, were speeding, purposely breaking when someone follows too closely. That's just mean honking in frustration. I don't feel people here honk too much and weaving in and out of slow moving traffic. That's that's also a pretty bad one. Yeah, people. And I'm like, where are you going to go? I'm going to see you at the next red light. I'm going to pull up right next to you. And then what? Where are you off to? Right? <laughs> yeah. Interestingly, I saw um, someone once tell their kid to blow kisses at someone who had okay, that's um, funny. annoyed them on the street. Okay, so. that's really funny. Raji, thank <laughs> you for that this morning. Raji's pet peeve is people not turning on their turn signal. What is yours? And can you be a courteous driver and be angry behind the wheel sometimes at the same time? Email me, simi at cknw.ca.